in the shadows. And if there's something that every single person in this place has, we all have this. None of us do not have this, is that we all have a shadow. Yes? How many people, as you grew up as a kid, did the whole thing, you know, where you get in the shadow and you do that on the concrete, or you used to do those dumb things where my shadow's taller than your shadow, and or on the way to school, you'd stomp on each other's shadows. Have you ever done that? Or like you're at school and you're like kicking the other person's shadow. Can, can you give me some love this morning? Like, am I the only person that did that as a kid, or is there other people in this place? How many as adults still do that? <laughs> you're walking behind your husband, he's ticked you off this morning, so he's walking in front, you're just giving his shadow a good boot. Not in my house, maybe, maybe in others' house, maybe in Rimmer's house. But we all have a shadow. Every single one of us has a shadow, and you have a shadow whether you want one or not, yes? You, you have a shadow. And, and the thing is, is that what I have discovered in growing up as, I, as I've looked at my parents, and I can remember as I was growing up looking at my parents and going, uh, that thing that they do, I'm not going to do that. Yeah? Uh, how many people made a kind of like a mental list of all the things that your parents did that you're not going to do when you're a parent? You, you guys that have got your hands down, you're liars. Every single person does this. We all think, when I'm a parent, I'm not going to do that, especially when you're in that teenage years. You've you got the plan of how you're going to parent, and, and we have these things and make these mental lists about, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do this. We make a mental list of the things that they did that I'm not going to do, yeah? And, and you have this great thing, and then all of a sudden, one day, your kids say, you're just like your parents, that's what Nana does, or that's what Granddad does. And in that moment, you don't know whether it's a compliment or not. You don't know whether you've messed up or not. But all of a sudden, you start to realize how big a shadow your parents have cast on you for your life. You know, one of the things my mum used to say to my brother and I all the time, and I hated it, and I said to myself, I will never say this to my kids but I did say it to my kids. It was this, two wrongs don't make a right. Did anyone have a mum that did that? You're a tough crowd this morning. Two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah, but two negatives make a positive. And uh, that was almost my response. And then when my kids, you know, he, but he, but he, and then I, this one day that came out of my mouth, two wrongs don't make ah, Put those words back in. And you start to realize this, Massive shadow that your parents have cast over your life. And now the shadow that you once lived in is now the shadow that begins to live in you. And people start saying things like, you're just like your dad. And you don't know whether that's a compliment or not. You don't know whether I need counseling or whether I should be okay with that. Tough crowd. For me... The thought that I have lived in the shadow of my parents and that the shadow of my parents is now living in me, for me, that's a happy thought. It's a great thought for me because the shadow of my parents was life-giving. The shadow of my parents was affirming and encouraging. But for some of you, the shadow of your parents is not so flash. For some of you, it might have been a shadow of tension that you grew up in, a shadow of addiction 
that you grew up in, a shadow of anger that you grew up in in your home. Or some of you might have had a shadow of absence because your dad or whatever wasn't around. And, and it's not that you have an absence of a shadow, it's just that you have a shadow of absence over your life. Every person casts a shadow and we, to some degree, as we grow in life and as we grow up into adulthood, we, we labor under the shadow of our parents to a degree because it's, it's kind of made us who we are today. It's kind of had a huge influence on who we have become. That shadow that our parents have cast. But can, and we, we're quite easily able to sit down and, and work out the, the good parts of that shadow and the bad parts of that shadow and how it's affected us in our lives. And some of us have had to have counseling because of some of the shadows that have been cast upon us. And we're so quick to point out the shadows of others, but have you ever considered that people are living in your shadow? Have you ever considered that people are living in your shadow? There's three reasons why people live in your shadow. The first reason is is because of proximity. Your children don't get a choice. Yes? <laughs> you know, they, they live in your shadow because they're close to you. They don't, they don't have a choice. It's not like they get up in the morning and go, oh, I hope I don't live in the shadow of my parents this week. We, we, we live in some people's shadow purely because of the proximity that we are in. They have no choice. My children don't have a choice. I brought them into the world or take them out of this world. They are in my shadow. Then there are people that are in your shadow strategically. These are people that have seen something in you that they love or that they like, and they're like, hey, I, I really like that about that person. And so they strategically choose to build a relationship with you to get close enough to you to hope that that rubs off onto you. And then there are those that are in your shadow accidentally. You know, you turn up to the coffee, you turn up to the cafe every morning at 20 past eight, and, and you just keep on bumping into the same person over and over again. You, you know, you don't know them, but now your eyes have locked. Now it's feeling really weird because you do know them, but you don't know them. It's just that you see them at 20 past eight every morning, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I'm the only one that has that. I've had to change my coffee schedule because the place that I go to to get my coffee, she has a little baby and... And I turned up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday this week, and each time I turned up, she was breastfeeding, and I had to wait for my coffee to be made. So inconvenient. So I've had to, I've had to get my schedule in line with the feeding schedule so that I can get my coffee at the right time. There, there are reasons that people are in our shadow because of proximity, because they strategically want to, and because they accidentally get there. And there's a lot of people in our shadows and they could be intentionally and they could be accidentally. But here's the thing. They are looking at our lives, trying to work out whether they want to follow Jesus like you're following Jesus. And I believe that every single one of us was born in our DNA with this thing that we want to make a positive mark on the world and on creation, on the world around us. The reason why I believe that every single one of us wants to make a positive mark is because kids have this in their DNA. You, you don't have to teach this to a child, right? 
let, let me give you an example. The moment they work out they can do something, all of a sudden your attention is called for for a moment of entertainment while they show you how amazing they are so that you can turn around and go, oh, wow, you're so clever. Don't they? Yeah? You know, when they first learn to do a forward roll, which kind of goes sideways, never, you know, or, or when they, they really start to discover their creative side and they, and they color and they draw you a picture and then they go, guess what it is? And you got no idea what it is because it looks like something the cat dragged in and, but they're excited and you're talking about how amazing it is or like when they're really young and you get to Christmas and, and, and you get the homemade Christmas presents. And you have to act like like it's the best thing that you've ever got in your life and you don't even know what it is. But it's amazing. And then you wait for them to, you know, turn their head and go away. And about 12 months later, while they're not looking, you put that into the file 13 rubbish bin to get it out of the house because it's the most horrible thing you've ever been given in your life. That's not me. It's just what I heard happens. You know, they make those homemade Christmas decorations to go on your Christmas tree, but you're the sort of person that's quite anally retentive about your Christmas tree and what sort of decorations should go on your Christmas tree. And so the children's decorations never get on the Christmas tree because they have their own trees now in their room where their ugly decorations can go on. I don't know whose house that is, Trinity, Jordan. You know, they figure out that moment that they can do something and they want an audience. They want everyone to see just how amazing they are so you can, you can admire what they've done. That, that DNA is in the hearts of us that we want to uh, have an impact or we want to do something of significance and we want everybody to say to us, hey, well done. In fact, the scripture teaches us that that's the thing that we want to hear when we leave this earth and we go to heaven is well done, good and faithful servant. It's in our DNA and and I think that God intentionally, with intention, actually is, is wanting us to have impactful shadows upon those that are around us when we live with an intentional way. Your shadow has people in it. The shadow that you cast has people in it that are divinely assigned by God to be in your shadow. That person sitting beside you at work is not there by chance. They're there because God has placed them there beside you to be in your shadow. And if we can be impactful with our shadows, then we can leave a mark on this world around us that gets the well done, good and faithful comment. The first thing I want to tell you about your shadow is that our shadow has influence whether you like it or not. Our shadow has influence whether you like it or not. It could be for bad or it could be for good. But your shadow has influence whether you like it or not. And I believe that if we choose to live our lives for God, that, that those people that are in the shadow have a great chance to see who God is and to find who God is just by the fact that they can see the God that's in your shadow. But then when we begin to live a life of compromise, I think what happens then is our shadow starts to get a bit foggy. Our shadow starts to get a little bit confusing to people when they see us doing one thing on Sunday and another thing on Saturday. 
our shadow becomes foggy to our children that we so want to pursue Christ when we don't make Christ a priority. I'm going to say this this morning, you're not going to like me very much when I say it, but the reason why your kids are having doubt about their Christianity and the reason why they don't want to come to church is because you haven't made Christianity and church a priority, and so they won't make it a priority because your shadow is confusing them about what's important. The Bible says this, those who become, become planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of their God. The flourishing comes from being planted, becoming planted, as in get your roots down deep, not as in rock up once every four weeks. I'm just, I'm trying to help you because you'll you're pray prayers like, why isn't God for me? Why isn't my life going well? Why isn't things happening for me? Because you can't flourish if you're not planted. The flourishing comes from the planting. The lemon tree will not produce lemons unless you plant it. Let its roots get down deep so that an aki can produce what it was born to produce. Flourishing comes from being planted. And so when we compromise on things that we shouldn't compromise on, we create a foggy shadow. And then what happens is it becomes confusing to those that see it. And the people in your shadow enter the same fog that you are projecting. And they become confused. You, your shadow has an impact whether you like it or not. The second thing is your shadow is always consistent with your life. Your shadow is always consistent with your life. If you go out into the sun right now, it doesn't matter whether I imagine myself with a six-pack, my shadow is going to project a keg onto the footpath. I can suck it in, and that might help for a little bit, but I can't suck it in forever. At some stage, I will have to let it out, and then my shadow will reflect exactly who I am. Your shadow actually is consistent with your life. Let me say this. There is a big difference between projection and a reflection. You need to understand this. There's a big difference between a projection and a reflection of your shadow. A shadow is a reflection of you, not a projection of you. Instagram is a projection of somebody. It's not a reflection of them. When people post, living my best life now, they're only projecting the good times. Nobody posts, just had an argument with my wife. Marriage really sucks. Nobody puts that on there. Come on. You're so quiet this morning. Instagram and and social media and all that sort of stuff has made us masters of projecting what we want people to see about our lives. We're projecting what we want them to see. And, And some of us become so miserable when we're flicking through social media because we're looking at these projections and thinking that it's a reflection. And then we look at our lives and we see the reflection of our lives and we think our life sucks compared to their life, but that's a projection of their life. It's not a reflection of their life. It's not a true reflection of who they are. And you need to understand, and I need to understand consistently, that our reflection, our shadow, reflects truly who we are. Truly who we are. It says this in Proverbs 27, 19, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. Your your shadow is a true reflection of who you are. That's why people that are in 
proximity or people that strategically want to get to know you or people that accidentally come, come around you, they, they see the real you. And you can't measure your reflection by somebody else's projection. You will reflect who you truly are. And the Bible says, says as one's life reflects the heart. So here's the thing. People that stand in your shadow will never experience compassion if you don't have a compassionate heart. People in your shadow will never experience a fountain of kindness if it doesn't come from a heart filled with kindness. People in your world and your shadow will never uh, experience the love of Christ if it doesn't come from a heart filled with the love of Christ. Our shadow reflects truly who we are. The third thing is, is that an impactful, impactful shadow comes from God's ongoing work in our lives. An impacting shadow, a shadow that affects people comes from an ongoing, not, not a once-off, but an ongoing work in our lives. It says in Jeremiah 18, 2-3, God speaks to Jeremiah the prophet. He says, now go down to the potter's shop, and I will speak to you there. So I did as he told me, and I found the potter working at his wheel. And so Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house, and the potter is obviously there with a lump of clay, and he's got the wheel spinning, and he's doing whatever he's doing. And Jeremiah is looking at the potter and God starts to speak to him and he says to him, Jeremiah, you don't understand. You're, you're looking at the potter thinking that you're the potter. He says, you, you need to understand something, Jeremiah. You're not the potter. You think you're the potter, but you're looking at the wrong thing. It's not the potter you should be looking at. You're looking at the potter because you think that your life is about self-purpose and self-determination. But he says to him, Jeremiah, you don't understand that, that I'm the potter. You're looking at the wrong thing. What you need to look at, Jeremiah, is you need to look at the clay, because the clay is who you are. I'm the potter. You're the clay. That's who you are, Jeremiah. You're the clay. You're the one whose life has been shaped by the master. Your life is the one that's sitting there on the wheel being shaped by the master potter. You are not the potter, you are the clay. And God is the one who shapes your world. And that's really nice that he's talking to Jeremiah this way, but in verse 4, it says, but the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. The potter's making this jar and it didn't turn out the way he hoped, so he crushed it into a lump of clay again. It's almost like I'm trying to make this vase, it didn't work, so... Just crunch it all back up again. Anybody actually felt that way? That you feel like you're getting somewhere and then God just goes and crushes you back down again? Just one or two? You see, here's the thing that he's trying to show Jeremiah is who your life isn't turning out the way that I need it to turn out so that your shadow casts the right things in the right way to affect those around you. Then I'm going to crush it, not to hurt you, but to rebuild you. If your life starts getting off in a wrong tangent, as the potter, I'm going to reshape that because I have a plan and a purpose for your life and I have a vision for your life and he doesn't crush it to hurt the person. He, he does it so that he can rebuild, so that you can reflect his plan. And, and, and the way that 
He builds you into the vase that can carry the things that God wants you to do. Is the way that a potter shapes a vase is from pressure from the outside and the inside. And that pressure from the hands just starts to mold it into the right thing. And the key thing for you and I is that if we would yield ourselves to, to the potter's hands, if we would yield ourselves to the potter and stay soft, then God is able to shape us into something that has a shadow that impacts people's lives. And so my question to you would be this, is when people look at you, do they see the fingerprints of the potter on your life? When people look at us, do they see the fingerprints of God on our lives? Do they see the shaping of God on our lives? Do they see what God has done? Has, have they seen the master potter's work? You see, because when they do, when they do see that, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that your shadow will have a great impact on them because they'll see the fingerprints of God because you've been impacted by the hands of a living God and that can't help but reflect itself in your shadow. And people will see that. The fourth thing I want to talk to you about this morning about shadows is your greatest impact does not come from access to many, but from access to a few. Here's the key thing that I'm learning as a pastor, is that I can't actually impact your life that well using this microphone in this big environment. I can't. I can inspire you. I can hopefully motivate you. I can inspire you. I can hopefully challenge you. But I can't really impact your life through this microphone in this big environment. But I can impact you by getting you close enough that we're hanging out, having coffee together, doing life together, will impact you more than anything that I could ever say from this pulpit. See, we need proximity because impact happens when we're up close. And the reason why this is true today is because Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that impact doesn't happen in crowds. Impact happens in proximity. And that's why when he saw Zacchaeus in the tree, looking at him as he's coming through town, he doesn't say to Zacchaeus in a, in a, in a public environment where the crowds are everywhere, Zacchaeus, let me tell you what's wrong with your life. No, what does he do? He says, hey, I'm coming to your house tonight for dinner. He gets into a place of proximity inside Zacchaeus' house for dinner, where it's just them, in, you know, proximity, close, hanging out. And Jesus' life has such an impact just over dinner because of the proximity that he is to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus comes out of the house and he says, for everybody that I've stolen from, I will pay back four times what I took from you. That's the impact of a shadow that gets close enough, that shows the fingerprints of God that touches lives. He didn't say to him in the crowd, he said to him, let me go to your house. There's a woman in the Bible, in John chapter 4 from Samaria, and it goes like this in verse 4, it says, he had to go through Samaria on the way. I, I, I love that, that it says this, that he had to go through, because the Jews normally would not walk through Samaria, because Samaria they considered to be they consider those people to be dogs. So rather than walking through Samaria to get to where they're going, they will walk around the outside of it, take twice the time, because that's how much they despise the Samaritan people. But here's the thing, is that, is that 
Jesus here says he had to go through Samaria on the way. In other words, he made a choice to go through Samaria. Why? Because I think he was had in mind an encounter that we're about to read about. He had to go to Samaria on the way, and Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat wearily beside the well, and soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The disciples are such good guys because he's like, man, I'm hungry. Just leave Jesus here. Let's go get some BK or something. It goes on further down into verse 25, and it says, Jesus has had this big discussion with this woman about who he is, and she's starting to discover that he's the Christ. He still hasn't had anything to eat yet. She still actually hasn't. I think she eventually draws him water, but like there's this big discussion about who he is, and she's starting to come to a realization who Christ is, but it says that just then his disciples came back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. Because in Jewish culture, you didn't talk to a, if you're a man, you didn't talk to a woman, especially if you're a rabbi, let alone a Samaritan woman. So the disciples have come back and, and, and all they can be is, is one, they're still hungry probably, and two, they're shocked that he's talking to a woman. It says the woman left her water jar beside the well when ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, I love this, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. And Jesus replied, I have a kind of food that you don't know about. And then the disciples' response is, did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples are like, where did he get the food from, man? Has he been stashing something? Has he been hiding the chocolate? I got a text last yesterday on my way home from from the weekend, which is a men's conference that we go to, and if you didn't go to it, you need to go next year. And I get this text from my beautiful wife saying, honey, can you swing by the supermarket? Oh, no, she didn't actually say that. She just sent me a text saying, Madison ate all the Caramello Santas. I texted her back and I said, you need to give her a hiding and I'll pick some more up for you on the way home. It's like Madison found the secret stash. You know, the disciples are like, here he is talking to a woman. Here he is at the well having a God moment. And and they're like, where did he get the food from? Like, one, they're shocked that he's talking to a woman, and the next thought is their stomachs. Sounds like guys, eh? (laughs) The, The disciples are like, Jesus, why are you talking to this woman? And by the way, we're really, really hungry. Can you do that? Can you do that bread thing that you do? You know, like when we had the 5,000 men, women, and children, you know, you had the, did that whole kind of bread thing, fish thing, and fed everybody. Why don't you do that? We're hungry, man. Why don't you do the bread trick? You, you, can we get this thing moving in the right direction again? Do that, do that big thing that's going to get everybody's attention. Do, do that big thing that got everybody's attention, that got everybody watching you. The crazy thing about the feeding of the 5,000, it says that they started 
to follow Jesus after he fed them. And then we get to a point in the story where they start to walk away in their droves from him because rather than giving them more food, he's starting to give them spiritual food. They feel challenged by what Jesus is teaching them and they start to walk away from him. You see, the crowd's just like the big stuff. Nothing transformational happens in the big crowd. And here's Jesus at the well and and, and the disciples are just like, why are you talking to a woman? We're hungry. Can you do something? But they didn't understand that Jesus was on a mission talking to this woman. He was on a mission to save an entire village. He was on a mission to see that entire village come to Christ. But he knew the way to impact an entire village was by changing and saving a single life. We, we talk about things like, Let's see our community transform. Let's see our community come to Christ. And, and I think we can get lost in why, why are you talking to that? And, and where's the food? And let's do something big that gets, you know, let's do a big event that gets everybody drawn in. But Jesus is like, I'm on a mission to save a village. And I understand that the way to save the village is by saving the one. By saving the one. And in verse 39, it says, many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of what? The woman's testimony. He told me everything I had ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Because of her testimony, a whole entire village came. Initially, they came to Christ because of her testimony. It says earlier that she went into the village and said, come and see. I, I, I think one of the shifts that we need to make in the Christian world is to stop inviting people to church and start bringing people to church. She didn't go to them and say, hey, I invite you to come out to the well. There's a guy out there. I think he's a pretty good speaker. No, he said, come, come, come with me. Come in here. He, she brought, she brought him. I, you know, rather than inviting someone, how about you say, hey, look, I'm going to take you to church on Sunday. Before we go to church, I'm taking you out for breakfast and coffee. And you bring them to church. Oh, I've invited people and. And, and, and I don't want to come. Here's the thing. 70, statistics say this. 78% of people that were asked that don't go to church said that they go to church if they were invited, but only 3 to 4% of Christians invite someone to church. You see, the harvest is ready. It's the laborers that are the issue. And we need to stop inviting and start bringing. Come see. Come see this God that told me everything about me. Come see. Come see. Jesus was on a mission. He was like, I've got to get to this woman. She's not a good one in the eyes of the people, but you know, she has five husbands, and the one that she's with now is not her husband. You know, she doesn't look like a very good example of what we should be going after. But Jesus was like, I have to go to Samaria. I have to get to this woman because he understood that she was the key to an entire village. And you know what makes me so happy about this the most? Is that if she's the key to an entire village, with all of that stuff that she's got going on, there's hope for you and there's hope for I. There is great hope for I that no matter what has gone on in your life, 
No matter what has happened in your world, no matter what you've done this week, no matter what you did yesterday, you may feel like you've made the worst and poorest decisions in your life, but I'm here to tell you something this morning, and if you hear nothing else, if you are the worst of the worst, you are the greatest candidate for the greatest transformation miracle of God, which shows in your shadow the fingerprints of the king, and it gets people to come out of the village to meet. Because everyone who's currently in your shadow when you're not in a good way knows how bad it is to be in it. But when God touches your life and your shadow starts to change, everybody that was in your shadow when it was bad, in your shadow now, knows undoubtedly that it's God that's made the difference in your life. The Bible says the whole village came out to believe because of the woman. I feel like God's saying to me so often, and I'm saying this to you, don't look for the crowds. Look for the coffee date. Don't look for the followers on Instagram. Ask God for a new strategic friend. The guy at the gym could be your woman at the well. The barista at your cafe could be your assignment could be your woman at the well. The person that you do Zumba with could be your woman at the well. The person sitting beside you at the desk in your office could be your woman at the well. And I think if we start to understand, God, show me the Samaritan woman. Show me my woman at the well because behind the woman at the well is always a village. Behind the woman at the well is always a village. Don't ignore the moment because you don't know what God wants to do through their life or through your life. Don't ignore the moment. I want you to obey God's impulse and take what I call the seven-second challenge. Obey God's impulse and take the seven-second challenge. You know, that seven-second challenge you get when you're at the supermarket and you're standing in line about to buy the milk and the bread and the person in front of you turns and they look at you and your eyes into like you connect for a moment and you know. You know that God's about to ask you to do something. And the reason why you know that God's about to ask you to do something is because he's about to ask you to do something carried on the wings of butterflies in your stomach. Oh, she's here. Oh, there she is. You don't have to be afraid of the butterflies that come when God starts to prompt you Unfortunately, Enamun has a fear of butterflies. She went to the butterfly house at it, out, out at the airport when she was little and the teachers had to remove her from the butterfly house because she kept on trying to kill them because she's afraid of butterflies. I'm not talking about those kind of butterflies. I'm talking about those ones where your heart starts going in your chest and you know God's about to prompt you and so you're looking everywhere. You never eat chewing gum in your life, but all of a sudden you're interested in every single flavor that's right there at the checkout. You know what I'm talking about. That moment where God intersects with your world, the moment that, that he comes and you know that he wants you to do something and, and, and you know because it's, it's, you're nervous and you're getting wound up about it and in your gut you're going, no, no God, someone else can do it. I need to get home. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do this. I know you're about to ask me to do something. It's that seven-second moment where you either say yes or you say no. 
And most of us, including me, say no. You know why we say no? Because we don't like the risk. We don't like the risk that's involved with it. There's no certainty of what the outcome is going to look like if I say something. And in our culture and in our society, faith and risk just don't go together. We say we're stepping out in faith, but we're stepping out with a plan of what we think is going to happen, and we've got it all planned out. I'm stepping out in faith. You're not stepping out in faith if there's no risk attached. Faith doesn't know what's about to happen. It trusts God that it's going to outwork itself in front of you. We don't like, we are risk averse. We don't like it, but, but God has legacy written. God has encounters written in those seven second moments. And we need to realize that that person in front of you at the checkout is not there by accident, but God has placed them there for the seven second moment that if you would rise up in faith and get away from the fear of the risk you're about to take, you might actually see a miraculous moment happen in seven seconds, which sees a life transformed. You've got to take a risk with your faith and realize that there are those in your shadow because they're there by divine reason that God has put them in your shadow. There is a purpose, and you know that you're in God's purpose because the butterflies start to fly on the inside of us, and you're feeling weird, and you're feeling freaked out, and you don't want to do, but in that moment, in that moment, in that seven-second moment is when the miracle stories happen. The miracle stories happen. God always meets us on the edge of where faith and risk meet because that's the shadow. That's where you are in the shadow of him. So for many of us that are followers of Christ, for many of us that are followers of Jesus, we have gotten scared of taking risk. We have forgotten that people are put in our proximity that people are there strategically or accidentally because there's a divine assignment for you in your shadow for those people. The people in your shadow have become invisible to us because we think that they're not going to like us if we say something, that we're going to lose friendships. But they are drawn to you because of the Christ in you. God has brought them into your shadow because your shadow is the place where they're going to see the fingerprints of the potter on a life that has been transformed. And I want to say to you this morning, walk the plank, take the risk, bring them to church. Oh, you don't understand, I've invited them before and they won't come. Invite them again, but don't invite them, bring them. Remember going for coffee first, we're going to have breakfast, Let's do something where, where you are bringing them, not just inviting them. Because the next time they may say yes, or that person that you've been so scared to ask might actually be sitting there saying, if there really is a God, if there really is a God that loves me, then somebody will talk to me, or somebody will invite me, or someone will speak something into my life. I don't know how many stories I have heard in all my life that I've been around the church where I've heard that sort of story. I prayed a prayer, God, if you're real, then da da da. And then somebody took a risk and reached out to them. And they became followers of Christ because they praying prayers, friend. They want to know whether God is real, and you and I 
are the ones that cast the shadow of who God is upon them. The person you've been sitting next to, that guy at the gym, the person that you keep bumping into at the coffee shop, is in your shadow for divine purpose. When was the last time? When was the last time that you lived scared in your mission for Jesus? This is a really challenging thought to me 